Hello, this is Jim Rooker, and welcome to Clubhouse Conversation. Every summer in Kansas City, 25 men have one simple mission, to win. Starting pitchers, corner power hitters, middle relievers, speedy gloves up the middle, closers, utility infielders, backup catchers, and they're each remembered here. From 1969 to last year, all Royals careers have been preserved with the most comprehensive collection of facts, memories, and stories in existence. Welcome to Clubhouse Conversation. And I'll tell you what, we have an amazing treat for you right now here on Clubhouse Conversation. It's me, Davo, and I'm joined by Jim Rooker today, one of the original Kansas City Royals from 1969 until 1972. The Royals took him in the third round of the expansion draft from the New York Yankees. Jim Rooker, the lefty, was a really good pitcher for the Royals. He once took a no-hitter into the ninth inning at Yankee Stadium only to lose that. They tied the game in the ninth. He pitched almost 12 innings that game, though. He did that once. He also once took Jim Cott deep in the same game two times, as those were the days before the DH. Jim Rooker was drafted and came up as an outfielder in the Tigers organization, could always really hit. So he was a great hitter, the best-hitting pitcher all time in Royals history. We'll talk about that. We'll talk about several of his former Royals teammates who unfortunately are no longer with us on this earth. We'll get them remembered, get some memories on paper, talk about the managers, talk about his career as a broadcaster, what it was like pitching in the World Series for the Pittsburgh Pirates, all that and so much more as Jim Rooker joins us from his home in Jacksonville, Florida right now. Such an honor, Jim. Welcome to Clubhouse Conversation, and and how are you? Well, this morning with my granddaughter, I've already done a blowing bubble session, then taking her on a little tricycle ride, then blowing bubbles again, <laughs> then playing baseball with a golf ball. So uh, she keeps me pretty busy. And it's uh, the weather finally has turned here. It's finally, we got, we're, we're getting into, from a chilly spring almost to a hot middle summer. Do you play at Sawgrass ever down there, by the way? I haven't played there probably in, I'm going to say, three years. Okay, okay. I play, you know what we do when we go over there after they have this event? This course, they put so much time and effort into it to this week. That's when the course is at its finest. But the rest of the year, the valley course is much better than than the stadium course. Oh, I didn't know that. It's unbelievable, yeah. Well, so you've done a ton of awesome things since your career ended. Um, One that I want to talk about right now is you've written and published several children's books that involve baseball. So tell us where you came up with the idea to do those, first of all. Well, the the book idea, this was when my grandson was six years old, the, the next to last, or the, the next to the youngest, I should say, right now. He's six, and when he was born, um, I was going back and forth from, from Jacksonville to Pittsburgh because I owned a restaurant up there, so my partner and I would rotate weeks. We'd go back and forth to keep our eyes on things, and one uh, this was about a month or two after Shane was born, uh, I was flying back to Jacksonville, and I'm just, you know, in my seat, daydreaming, wondering, thinking about the kids and all that stuff, and being away from him for a week, kind of anxious to see him again because he was, you know, a newborn, and I'm thinking, all of a sudden, it just hit me, you know, what what can you do for your grandkids that is a little bit, you know, not in line with what normal grandparents do. You know, you give them all the love and affection you can and anything monetary that you think is appropriate. But uh, all of a sudden I just said, geez, why don't you write a book? And then I, in my mind, and, and I think the one thing about it was not a book for, for children that, that are 
eight, nine, ten, and and up in age. These are just for the for the younger grandchildren, basically, or children in general. And I'm thinking, well, you know, what can I, what do I know about that would make, you know, kids uh, or to get their attention and. When you watch the, 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 you know, children that are newborns, when they're in their little seat or whatever, and a cartoon is on, it's just the animation, the color, and everything that does attract their attention. And so I decided that, well, geez, I'll go ahead and write a book, but I thought about it from a story and cut it down to basically an object of some kind that the child could basically zero in on. And then with that idea, I, I, I started, well, why not make it a baseball? Talk about a baseball. And then short and sweet, the animation, the color, and then the rhyming part of it that is so easy for children to read. And I might add that for parents and grandparents, easy to read. So, <laughs> And it's a quick read. So you make it short and sweet. You keep their attention. And that's how I came up with Paul the Baseball. And... Uh, uh, after that, and I contacted Mascot Books uh, to see if they were interested or to even see if I was wasting my time. And, and I sent them the script uh, and, and the animation, and they loved it. And they said, we like it. We'd like you to do two more books. And I'm thinking, well, I never thought it was going to go this far. And <laughs> Then I came up, well, let's keep it in, in line with objects. So I went to Map the Bat, and then I'm thinking, well, come on. you got to get, get in the 20th century, Rook. It's... You know, you got to include girls or even, you know, uh, uh, other races, so to speak, whether it's Mexican or, or uh, uh, African-American or whatever. So I, I called a mascot and I said, well, what do, you, I, what do you think about this idea if I write one for little girls, too? And that's how I came up with Kit the Mint, the pink mint. And they thought it was a great idea. So I finally got all three of them together and sent them off and um, they had them printed up and uh, I, I never, uh, until you saw the finished product, I didn't realize what a nice gift this thing could be. And and for people who are real baseball fans that like to pass that on to their sons or daughters or nieces, nephews, grandsons, daughters, and whatever, um, it's such a long-lasting product, so to speak, and very nicely done. That I was, I was truly amazed and pretty proud of what I had done because I don't have a writing background. I have the mentality of a five-year-old. I think that's probably why they came out so well. <laughs> so that that was how they started. And, and uh, uh, you know, the, the only the only negative about it is which I now if I was still playing, I'm sure it'd be a different story. But when you're out of the game, in a sense, you're you're basically out of the game. And the book company that uh, that uh, you know, mascot books, they've done a little bit, but I've done more marketing and selling of the books than they have, and it's kind of a disappointment on my side from from them saying to me that wait till we get these in our hands, we'll show you what we're good at. Well, they they haven't shown me much of anything. Yeah. And and part of that reason, I think, is that because I paid for everything, I get a much larger percentage of the of the sales than they do, so maybe their incentive isn't as great as it should be. Well, we'll help you market. I mean, I love that. I've seen the books; they're great. I got one for my uh, for my niece, and she loved it. Everybody, it, so. everybody. See, it's just one of these things too. They don't know unless you, you know. How do you market it? How do you get it out there? I can't compete with huge companies and and get into markets that they do. And and it, that's the thing. And when people do get their hands on them, and they 
the, the number one word I hear more than anything else is they, the, especially from the ladies, they say this is really a, adorable. Yeah. Is the word they use. So that makes me feel good, and I enjoy. I get, I get, you know, from being a former player, you get a lot of baseball cards sent to you from fans all over the country and actually all over the world, and they want autographs. And I'll get one occasionally that said they bought one of my books for their child or niece or nephew or whatever, and it. You know, you, that's kind of part of the reward as well. It makes you feel good because that was my goal, to bring baseball and children and reading all together, the three of them, because I thought it would be a, a great marriage for for the three of them. Well, for Royals fans listening, is, is there a, a, a particular website or place they should buy the books at online? Well, yeah, if they go to mascotbooks.com and then go to uh, authors and then you'll see my name, they can order the books through Mascot. Or Barnes & Noble has been a pretty good partner. Uh, in fact, I'm going up to Pittsburgh next weekend for a 35th year reunion of our 79 World Series team, and I'm doing a couple of signings up there, one at Barnes & Noble and, and then one at a card show. So I'll be you know, trying to move some of the books during the weekend. But uh, that, those are the two, uh, mascotbooks.com or Barnes & Noble. You can order them through them usually. Perfect. Now you mentioned uh, it was Rook's Eastside Saloon in Pennsylvania, right? You ran that for yeah. many years. Is that is that still up and going right now? <laughs> well, it's up and going, but we sold it a couple years ago because my partner moved to Atlanta, and of course I moved to here. And you cannot run a cash business as a semi absentee owner. I don't care if your mother and father are working for you; the cash ain't going to come through like it's supposed to. <laughs> right? So, you know, it's and I don't mean that. You know, I mean that's kind of a joke but that's how tough the business is you have to really stay on top of things but we were there for for 28 30 years uh in in a little town called ambridge just outside of pittsburgh and and we did very well i enjoyed it i always loved the restaurant business so uh, we had a real good run with it i bet you watched lots of royals and pirates games there right or at least the, the, oh, the yeah. Patriots did. oh yeah <laughs> yeah it's a and, and it's 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 a family sports bar Type of atmosphere, uh, you know. We 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 do. Uh, uh, we made it a point to keep because when you're in Pittsburgh, you're in that area in these small towns. That's that's what you have to concentrate on are the are the fans and the families in general. And and uh, you know, it's just like marketing baseball. You know, who do they go after? Family, kids, fans. You know, that type of thing. So, um, like I say, it it worked, and we had you know the TVs set up, big screen TVs in the different rooms that we had, and everything. So it was it was a pretty good uh, situation for us for a lot of, long time. Well, you've had an amazing life in baseball, and I want to hear about it all. So let's go way back in time to 1960 when you signed with the Detroit Tigers and Jack Fournier. What do you remember about the day that you signed your first professional contract? Well, uh, you know it's it's. It's it really brings back great memories, and, and it's Jack Fournier. Oh, okay. Is, is uh, and he he was an incredible individual. He was the scout that signed my best friend, which we are. We've been friends since little league baseball, and we remain very close. He lives in California still, and he's actually the reason I signed because he was so good in high school. His name was Lindy Kurt. And this kid was such a dominating pitcher in high school. And, and at that, he's the perfect size, 6'2", 195, left-handed pitcher. Now, you've got to remember, back in 1960 in high school, he was throwing fork balls <laughs> then. And he had an overpowering fastball, a devastating curve. 
And there were so many scouts watching this kid that every once in a while, because I was an outfielder, I would hit a home run here or two there. And I just got a couple of teams' attention, Detroit being one and Milwaukee the other, and they both offered to sign me. But my buddy had already signed with Detroit a week earlier. So when they asked me, do you want to play baseball and get paid for it, I mean, I'm thinking it just doesn't get any better than this because back then – it's a lot different today. Too many players, I think, signed for the money first and then baseball second. Back then, it was just the opposite. You signed to play baseball because the money wasn't really there. I even had friends of mine when, when, when they found out, because I wasn't a blue-chip player like my buddy was. But I had friends of mine said, they're not going to sign you and pay you to play baseball. You're not that good. <laughs> and I said, well that good but apparently good enough where somebody's interested so uh uh jack took me out a couple of me and my buddy he took us out to dinner downtown los angeles to the biltmore hotel and you talk about a kid walking into a place that was in never never land i mean i i looked around and we sat in the in the main dining room and the waiter came over and i'll never forget you know, we didn't have much. I mean, we didn't have steaks a lot. Of, my mom was an expert at cooking hamburger and liver and stuff like that. <laughs> and the guy asked, what would you guys like? And I said, could I, you know, could I have a cheeseburger? I, I didn't even know how to order. <laughs> and and Jack looked at me and he, you know, I weighed 165 pounds in high school when I graduated. And he said, give that kid a steak and give him a big baked potato and a lot of butter on the potato. And you know, whatever he wants to drink, you know, and I'm sitting there and my eyes are rolling back. I'm thinking, I can't, it can't be this good, you know. <laughs> I mean, so we went through that routine two weeks in a row, and we had a couple of games in between, and I did well enough again, and ultimately uh, signed with the Tigers. And, and uh, you know, my buddy and I, we were on our way in, a, in, a, in about two or three weeks. We went to Decatur, Illinois, our first uh, uh taste of minor league baseball and it was it was quite a thrill for me i mean you got to understand when i played when i was a little kid baseball I, there was nothing in the world i wanted more than to play baseball i mean day and night i was one of those kids that were in a field throwing a ball hitting a ball or something like that all the time and, and to be lucky enough to to play the game it's just you know you look back sometimes i i reminisce a little bit at times and think about you know the process and the years and it was just so much fun even the minor leagues i mean today even though you know you want to get to the big leagues the experience of playing minor league baseball was so much fun because they didn't have a double a and triple a and rookie league they had they had AAA, A, B, C, and D, and we started in D-ball, down at the very bottom in the basement of the minor leagues, and you had to work your way up the ladder and be good enough because they had so many more players back then that you were competing against you know, so many more guys, and you had to you know, really earn and work at it to, to advance to the next level. Yeah. Well, now you mentioned you got you know you were signed obviously as an outfielder, but how much did you pitch like in high school? Did, did you know you were a good pitcher? Did they know you were a good pitcher? No, I I, I pitched in little league. That's the last time I ever pitched. But an <laughs> incident happened in in Jamestown, New York. My first full year it was my first or second year, uh, and I I think it was my first full year in 1961. Our manager was Stubby Overmeyer, and uh, 
we had a catcher on our team named Don Bryant. And he, he is a big guy, 6'4", but he couldn't hit the ball 250 feet. So he wanted to take extra batting practice one day, but in the minor leagues, you can't use your pitchers, and they didn't have coaches like they do today. You had the manager. That's it. You didn't have anybody else. So he wanted to take extra batting practice and wanted to know if anybody would throw to him. And I said, yeah, I'll throw to you, because I, I mean, I did have a hell of an arm. I didn't realize how good it was, though. And so we get out there, and I warm up a little bit, and so he steps in, and he hits a few, and he says, okay, hit, you know, throw a little harder. You know, and I, okay, I'm not really thinking too much about it, and I throw a little harder, and and he hits a you know couple here and there, and come on now, put a little more on it. And I'm thinking, hey, geez, I'm just out here trying to, you know, I'm not a pitcher. I'm just, and my our manager's standing there watching this as it's happening. So I I tuned it up a little more and put a little more on it. And he says, oh, come on now. He said, that's not it. He said, put a little. And I said, Don, if I throw much harder, you're not going to hit it. <laughs> And he says, oh, what the hell do you know? He, he's kind of lagging on me a little bit. He says, throw that stuff in here. Of course, he was using different words. And, and I, says, I said, okay, here it comes. And I cut loose. He didn't even come close. And he, said, he kind of looked at me. He said, do it again, do it again. I said, you ain't going to hit it. And I, and I threw another one. And, and I was pitching from the rubber on the mound. I wasn't moved up or anything. And I just blew it right by his butt. And that was it. I walked off the mound. I said, I've had enough. I'm not doing this stuff. I don't, I'm not a pitcher, you know. So our manager grabs me and says, come on, I want you to come into my office. Now, we sit down, and he says, have you ever thought about pitching? And I said, no. I signed as an outfielder. Now, if I had any brains at all, I would have said, no, but I'd like to. I'd like to. I'd like to think about it, maybe, because until 19, I wasted five more years in the outfield, before they converted me to a pitcher full-time, there was another incident in Duluth, Minnesota that was semi-similar where we were playing a doubleheader and getting killed in the first game. So you always try to save pitchers if you can for the second game. And our manager was Gail Henley. And he asked me if I'd like, if anybody would like to pitch the last two innings. And I jumped at the chance and, and uh, shut them out for two innings. We tied the game, and then I lost it in extra innings. But both managers, unbeknownst to me at the time, both sent in a report to the to the Tigers that if I didn't, you know, come along and mature as a hitter, that uh, they might want to think about having me pitch or or explore the the possibility. Well, eventually, when I didn't get above Double A ball as a hitter, they started messing around with me pitching, and and I went into when I was in Knoxville in the Southern League. I played first base one night, center field one night, pitched the next night. I mean, that was crazy. You would never do that today. Yeah. But you're just trying to stay in in in, in the minor league. You're trying to you know get a job. You you don't you know you in the back of your mind, honestly, in the back of your mind, I'm thinking I'm never going to get in the big. I'll never be a big league ball player. And then all of a sudden in 1966, they take me to spring training, leave me alone. Let me pitch the whole year. I win 12 games in A-ball in, in Rocky Mountain, North Carolina. At the end of the year, I got called up to Detroit. And then from that point on, uh, uh, for the next three years, they, they left me alone pitching uh, up and down. And then in AAA in, in 1968 is when I really hit the jackpot. I dominated that league. And uh, for some reason, no, in 67, I take it, no, 68. Uh, they just... 
they just never pulled the trigger on me. I can't. I could never explain it, but it, it never. Uh, and being a left-hander, uh, I led the league in strikeouts. I think, and I, I won thirteen, fourteen, maybe games, something like that. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, it just it just never happened with Detroit, and I was traded to the Yankees as part of a player to be named later at the end of '68, and then got drafted off the Yankee roster when the Royals expanded in '69. Well, what do you remember going back to '68 with Toledo? You you, you got in two uh, big league games that year in Detroit. What do you remember about the call of the big leagues that first time? Do you have any? Well, again, stories? it's such a thrill because you go to spring training. That's one thing. You kind of get used to the spring training scene, being in the major league camp. But then when you get up there, and now it's the real thing. The first game I I came into it was against the Los Angeles Angels. And I'll be honest with you, when I got to the mound, from my waist down, I could not feel my legs. Huh. I was so nervous, I was numb, and I just tried to, I, I just tried to relax. And, and back then, back then, they didn't, they, didn't, they didn't bring you along like they do now. I mean, I, I, in, in, mentally they didn't. Now it's, just, it's different. Physically they don't, they don't let you pitch enough, I don't think, back then. You know, I mean, I'd pitch 100, 100, 170 or 180 innings in, in AAA ball. They won't let you do that in big leagues now yeah. if a starting pitcher. It's ridiculous. That's why they're having problems, I think. But anyway, um, uh, getting that, that, that opportunity and mentally getting over the respect and awe that you have for these guys that you've seen on television – it's it's hard to sometimes get over that hurdle that you do belong there, that you have to believe in yourself, you have to relax and actually do the things you did in AAA are actually good enough to get people out in the big leagues. You just have to convince yourself of it because there's that little bit of a fear factor there and the, and the fear of the unknown because you're, you're really not quite sure. And it took me a little while to get over that and gain the confidence to throw the ball over the plate. I mean, I, by that time, I was throwing the ball in the mid-90s, almost, I mean, I'd say 95, 97 miles an hour. It, but we didn't have radar back then, but everybody loved me because I could throw so hard. I was a left-hander, but I was all over the place. But if I got a, if I got a lead in a game and I got confidence early in the game, usually I did pretty well. But if I got, if I got behind, it was just so hard for me to, to have that confidence and try to relax and be consistent. Back then, they called it confidence, control, and consistency, the three C's of pitching. They don't even use those terms anymore, no. <laughs> like the three C's. But those were the, those were the things that, you had, to, that you, had to in your, you had to just keep reminding yourself to do those three things. And if you did, you were going to do pretty well. Well, so you came over to KC eventually in the third round of the expansion draft. But before we talk about that, you were also briefly sold to the Tigers, to the Yankees fall in the 68 season. How many days were you actually with the Yankees? Did you ever make a trip to New York or anything? No, because what had happened, Les Kane was pitching for the Tigers. They had two left-handers, both Les Kane and a guy named John Warden. And uh, neither one of them. Really, Kane had big league stuff, but he couldn't get the ball over the plate. Warden didn't quite have big league stuff, and he hurt his arm. And and Mayo Smith, for whatever reason, took both of those guys over me in 1968. They both pitched in A ball the year before. I pitched in Triple A and did very well. 
I t- like I say, to this day, I don't know what it was that apparently uh, didn't sell them on me. But I, if you, from our careers, you look what I did and they did, there was no comparison. And when it came to stuff, I actually had better mentally and physically all over those two guys. And, and they're good guys. It's not their fault. They're, they, didn't, they didn't think. So what happened was around July, I think it was, before the trading deadline, Jack Ty comes up to me. He was our manager at Toledo. And he says, well, you're on your way. And I looked at him and I says, on my way, what do you mean? I didn't know, I had no clue what he was talking about. He said, well, you're going to go up to Detroit. And I said, really? And he says, yeah. He said, they, I just got a phone call. They told me they're sending Kane down, and they're going to need another pitcher. He said, you're the only guy I would ever recommend, right? You're the only guy that, that uh, on this team that's, that's ready to go up there and pitch. And I said, well... And I, this was again. This was Mayo Smith, the manager for the Tigers. I don't. I. I just didn't. I. I don't know what it was, but there must have been a rub or something. He. He just didn't pull the trigger and and, and call me up. They ended up getting John Wyatt from the Yankees for a player to be named later at the end of the year. They gave the Yankees. The Tigers gave the Yankees a list of four or five guys. And they got to pick one guy off that list, and they chose me. So I was only a Yankee on paper. And then in the expansion draft, um, Kansas City took me in the third round, and I did get a nice letter from uh, uh, John McPhail, I think was his name, the general manager. He said that uh, he sent me a real nice telegram. I was in Puerto Rico playing winter ball. And he said that we, they tried to sneak me through a couple of rounds because they owed it. He said, we owe it to our players to protect these guys. And we were going to try to hold you off for one more round, but you were taken and, you know, good luck and all that. So I thought it was really a classy thing that he did, but that's how I ended up in Kansas city. I, I was a Yankee on paper, which I, I wished, I just wished I could have been a Yankee. I, I was a, I grew up a Mickey Mantle fan. So it would have been a dream come true for me to be in the, you know, pitch in New York. Especially in that time frame, in that oh, era. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, what do you remember about the day that the Royals took you in the expansion draft? Was that a surprise to you? Yeah, because uh, I mean, here I am with the Yankees. You know, that, I mean, that's when I was in Puerto Rico. I think when that when all that happened, and uh, and actually, I was in Puerto Rico when that happened. I remember being in the training room, and I get this telegram. That was a telegram from from John McPhail. And uh, uh, I'm reading this, and it was it was kind of a disappointment to a degree because you you uh, you know were a New York Yankee. I mean, let's face it, my goodness, you you got a chance to be on the New York Yankees. So uh, I'm reading a telegram, and it and it said, you know, unfortunately, you know. We weren't able to keep you, you know, the draft and this and that. Good luck, and you know, again referring to what I had said earlier. So it was, it was kind of some excitement uh, because our trainer in Puerto Rico was actually the same trainer that had been with the Kansas City. I think he was with Kansas City when they were uh, the Kansas City A's. Billy Jones was his name, huh. and then he be, he was still the trainer when they became the Royals. And, they, and, of course, we became very good friends through the years. But I started asking guys right away, well, what's it like in Kansas City? What's it like? You know what I mean? At first, and, and you're an expansion team. 
So I figured, well, as long as I'm healthy and, and I'm doing okay, I've got a pretty good chance of staying in the big leagues and learning. So now, you know, you're wondering how this process is going to begin. But I, I, I think probably one of the the the, the more, uh, what can I say, the enjoyable to a degree, the fun times I had in Kansas City my first year there, I don't know why and how it worked out, but back then, they assigned you roommates for the most part. You didn't just pick your own roommate. And me, uh, I, I roomed my first year in Kansas City with Lou Pinella. <laughs> and that was a treat in itself because Lou is a walking entertainment center, <laughs> you know, and it was, it was a blast. Yeah. Well, and I love Kansas City, man. I tell you, I love that town. Yeah, it's great. I wish we could win here again, like the old days. So 1969, you mentioned it. Uh, the majority of the year in KC, you had two games each in Omaha and High Point Thomasville. Now, I've always read a lot about High Point Thomasville. I know you were only there for two games. You may not have even ever actually pitched at home there. But do you have any recollection of what that was like there, what the stadium was like there, <laughs> et cetera? Yeah, yeah, because I had hurt my arm uh, in spring training. That's why I didn't break with them. Uh, so they sent me there for these two up and down a couple of times for these games, uh, especially in Thomasville. I go there and I wish I could remember the name of the. We didn't stay in the because my wife and two children. We didn't stay in a hotel. They put us at a uh, at a resort golf course, huh. and I cannot remember. It was beautiful. And in the two games I pitched in High Point, I mean, I, I obviously I dominated these, these. I think it was A ball. So it was kind of unfair because I, I did have the stuff, um, you know, and all the confidence in the world. When you work your way up in the minor leagues and you get to the next level, the next level, you get comfortable and you gain your confidence. And, and uh, so it was, it was really kind of unfair to a degree. Uh, because I, I just I think I gave up one run in two games in Thomasville, uh, so that was um, you know it was a pleasant experience you know minor league ballpark just you know when you play in the minor leagues for quite a few years I mean I played six or seven years uh, in the minor league so you've seen you pretty much seen all the ballparks good bad and in between because they you you had all three of them yeah, Thomasville so was a pretty nice little town. Huh. Interesting. So then, uh, 1969, full of memories for you and the Royals. Uh, you were the first ever Royals player to hit two home runs in a game off Jim Cott. Tell us that day and that story. Well, what surprises me most about that is that it's not in the Royals media guide. <laughs> I guarantee you they have a first section in there, but they don't have who was the first Royals player to hit two home runs in one game because they don't want everybody to know it was a pitcher. Yeah, right. They don't want to embarrass those big, uh, those <laughs> uh, you know guys that hit the long ball. But uh, and I always thought that was and, and I and I, I I even use that today in some trivia questions when I'm ta speaking to people or whatever, and I'll say you know baseball's a funny game, and I'll mention I, for example, who do you think the first player ever to hit two home runs in one game? It kind of throws them a curve, you know. And, <laughs> Of course, they can never hit it because now they always think of the DH. They forget that pitchers hit back then. Right. But uh, we were in Minnesota. The only the, the the thing about Cott, I mean, the fact that I was an outfielder, that was the best thing. And Jim Cott didn't have an overpowering fastball. He had a pretty good fastball, dynamite pitcher, very smart, knew how to move the ball around. That's what. That's why he was successful. And the fact that Johnny Sane was his pitching coach for so many years also. And luckily for me, 
when I was with the Tigers, Johnny Sane was there pitching. He 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 made all the difference in the world for me as far as is movement on the ball and 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 gaining some confidence. But anyway, with Cott, both times I got ahead in the count. By that I mean a hitter's count. It was either two balls and a strike, or maybe even three and one, or two and zero, oh, whatever. Both times I knew he was going to throw a fastball, and that's. That's as an outfielder. That's one thing I could do is hit a fastball. I, I hit 19 home runs in the Northern League one year, and all of those ballparks are big ballparks. So uh, uh, I knew he was going to throw a fastball. Uh, I hit one to right center into the bullpen, and then the next home run I hit to left center. It might have been the other way around, but not 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 straight away left field or whatever. But right center, left center, which is a pretty good distance. Uh, and both times, the only the only sad part about it is, Cott won the ball game. I hit the home runs, and I, I won that battle, but I lost the game, and that you know that kind of bothered me a little bit because you want, you know, that W as many times you, as you can get it. So that was the only the only sad part about it. Yeah. So you'll be happy to hear, by the way, that they did mention you on TV the other night as the best Royals, you know, hitting pitcher of all time. You were the trivia question the other night during the broadcast. Oh, really? So that's well, kind of... that's nice to know. <laughs> yeah. So... Well, you know what? Though? I, I I don't have very many bad guys or guys to go up against because the DH went into effect when I mean they. Yeah. Uh, uh, so I uh, we didn't have. In fact, on our team, Fitzy was a pretty decent hitter. But other than that, I can't think of anybody who was a was a you know that was a real threat when they came up to home plate. How'd you like playing for Joe Gordon that first year? Very strange experience, and I Joe was a really nice guy, but he had been out of baseball for twenty years. I know he was a hell of a player with the Yankees and had a real good career and all that stuff. Uh, but we had a young and inexperienced team. And you know, in today's climate, they look for what you what you call a teacher, someone who you know, and, and his coaches. They become teachers, you know, uh, if they have younger younger players. Back then, uh, Joe, you know, picked guys for his coaching staff and pitching. You didn't really have the teaching aspect of the game, I think, like you do today. I mean. Um, and, and and I'm not knocking these guys. That's the way baseball was back then. Every every team pretty much, you know, had the model of every other team. They did things that way. Uh, but Joe was a nice guy. Uh, but he had been out of the game for for 20 years, and it, and to a degree, it was unfair to him uh, that he ends up with a bunch of to a degree ragtag guys. But you know what? We finished third place that first year. Yeah. For an expansion team, that was pretty darn good. Um. Uh, so he had, I think, the bonus, the, the the wisest thing that Kansas City did in that draft was they drafted young, good arms. And we had experience. Jerry Adair and Mo Drabowski, I think, were the two leaders of the ball club. And then we got Cookie Rojas, and Cookie was a step above, uh, I think, Jerry. Even though Jerry was a good ball player, Cookie made Freddie Paytech the the player that I think that he became because Cookie was such a great second baseman. Him and Freddie, uh, uh, they did so many. They 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 turned double plays that God couldn't turn. I mean, it was unbelievable what they could do uh, to get you out of an inning. But uh, yeah, Joe was good. He was more of a hitter's manager, 
not into the pitching part of it, you know, and, and so uh, the us young guys that were trying to establish ourselves, you know, might have had it a little tougher in that regard. We, I don't think we got a lot of help, but, but it was, you know, I mean, Joe was, was an offensive hitter. You know, I think if he would have maybe chose a, a, a staff, you know, that, you know, Mel Harder was our pitching coach. Mel had been out of the game, I think, for a while, and he was, you know, he was a hell of a pitcher in his time. But um, it was a learning experience for all of us. Not well, I shouldn't say all of us. Some of the guys were ready to go, and that had been in the big leagues. But there were a few of us that, I mean, you take Roger Nelson, myself, Bill Butler, Alan Fitzmorris, Mike Hedlund. Uh, I can't remember everybody else. Bill Butler, if I missed him, but you know, good pitchers. But we just we needed a little more experience to turn things around. Well, nineteen seventy, you had two more managers, Charlie Metro and Bob Lemon. What are your memories of those guys? We were, <laughs> Charlie Metro. If you saw him off the field, he was the nicest, charming guy you'd ever met. Once he put that uniform on, he he was a different human being. <laughs> I mean, Charlie Charlie turned into. Into into Bob Cratchit, uh, he was hard on everybody. I mean, we we he had. I'll tell you how hard he was. We got we had curfew one night in Baltimore. The only two guys that didn't get fined were me and Mo Drabowski. He even fined the batting practice pitcher. <laughs> now, why would you find a batting practice pitcher? What difference does it make how late he stays out? But we got he fined everybody but me and Mo because we were in. And then two or three days later, I pitched a shutout in Chicago, and Charlie rescinded the fines, and he said, you can thank Rooker for, for not being fined because I pitched a shutout. So <laughs> uh, he let everybody off the hook. Charlie was tough. I mean, if you crossed him, I remember one day in spring training, the beginning of that year, that first, well, what his first year in spring training, he told the players in spring training, you don't you don't have curfew usually, and but he told the guy he said stay out of the hotel bar. He said I don't want anybody in that bar because we don't want people down here to get the wrong impression. Billy McCool and John Warden both, for some idiotic reason, <laughs> went to the bar and Charlie caught him. The next day, you know you you start you start the day in spring training you you usually out on the field and ready to go after you loosen up and everything 10:30 you start doing uh either drills or batting practice or what have you well charlie gets McCool and warden and he says you guys go down that third base line and i want you to run foul pole to foul pole until i tell you to stop <laughs> well he made them run the whole practice that day and it got to the point where us guys, we started feeling sorry for them. At first, we didn't care because, you know, they were stupid. They shouldn't have done that. But after a while, these guys were dragging in Metro. I mean, it's like he never even watched them the whole time. He just <laughs> let them run and, I mean, ran them into the ground. But that's how tough he was. Lemon on the other side, uh, I loved Bob Lemon. I wished I could have pitched better for him. I was still struggling when when uh, when he was our manager and, and uh he, if you, he was the kind of guy. He was a pitcher's manager. Let me just put it that way. If you did your job, uh, I, if I, I mean, I liked my pitching coaches in in Pittsburgh, and and I was doing real well there. But I would have loved to be the pitcher in Kansas City that I was in Pittsburgh, for a guy like Lemon because he would fight for you. He'd stick up for you. He was your guy. 
You know, I mean, and and he did that for all the players. But being a pitcher and your manager being a pitcher, I think there was that little closer relationship. And I, I don't know a guy to this day that did not like Bob Lemon as their manager. Goose Gossage is a real close friend of mine, and and we we talked a lot. And and uh, when he was in in the with the Yankees and Lemon managed there, he just he loved Bob Lemon too. I mean, it was just he was a great great guy. Huh. Well, 1970, you did throw 200 innings that year. You won double-figure games, and you led the Royals in victories. Then you also had five RBIs in a single game. Do you remember that game? Oh, yeah. Wilbur Wood was the pitcher, the knuckleballer. I got I hit uh, five RBIs against him. Uh, I don't think I hit a home run, though. I think a couple of doubles in there. That's how I ended it. And that might have been the shutout game. I'm not sure if that was the one or else I'd maybe just given up one run. But uh, anyway, I remember... Nobody could hit Wilbur Wood, and that's the thing. You know what? I hit I hit a home run off uh, Joe Necro. It was either Joe or Phil Necro. I think it was I think it was Joe in it or no Phil in Atlanta. I could never figure out. I had pretty good success against knuckleball pitchers, and I, I could never understand our hitters why they couldn't hit a knuckleball. And they say, well, nobody ever knows where it's going, but as it comes in and flutters a little bit. You have a pretty good idea, plus you have a little more time to figure it out. And I think that's why I never, I never gave a knuckleballer more credit than I think the hitters did. Willie Stargell always used this phrase. He said, hitting a knuckleball, because he faced Necro a lot, he said, hitting a knuckleball is like eating soup with a fork. And, uh, and I'm thinking, what, what's so tough? I said, you know, you guys ought to, you ought to let me hit against this guy. I'll rip his butt. And I, I did hit, hit a home run off of him in Atlanta one night. But, uh, yeah, that's five RBIs. I, I walked around with my chest puffed out, you know, and I, my roommate, Lou Pinella, I, I don't know what kind of day he had, but I'd always rub it in if I had a better game than he did. So, uh, uh, you know, that was, that was a big day for me. I mean, my job is to pitch, but five RBIs in one game for a pitcher? That's, you know, that's pretty good. Yeah, well, then that same year, you mentioned it briefly there, but the shutout games. You had, well, no-hitter. You took a no-hitter into the ninth versus the Yankees, and Horace Clark spoiled the no-no. Bobby Mercer drove in, you know, the double to tie the game. But you pitched to the 12th inning that game. What are your memories of that game? Yeah, I, that, that's like yesterday because when I was warming up in the bullpen, this is an indication of how good my stuff was. I'm I'm warming up in the bullpen, and I honestly, on a given night, you know what you have just by the reaction of the ball and how the catchers. I mean, my my fastball was darting and moving, curveball was cracking like a whip and darting like you couldn't believe. There was only one problem while I was warming up. Hardly anything I threw was in the strike zone. It was unbelievable, and I'm shaking my head. I'm going, oh, brother, this is going to be something. How long are you going to be in this ball game? <laughs> well, in the first inning, I think I walked the first guy in the game. I might have walked It might have been Horace. Yeah, he was a leadoff man. I think I walked him and then walked another guy, or Rich Severson was our second baseman or shortstop. Severson or Severson, I can't remember how you pronounce it. He made an error. Then I then I walked another guy. Somehow I end up with the bases loaded, nobody out. Now what do you think's going through my mind then? Here we go again. Yeah. Yankee Stadium. This was my very first start in Yankee Stadium. I had started other games, but 
being number one in Yankee Stadium, the 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 cathedral of baseball parks, your your the history there. I I was just I was so thrilled to pitch in that ballpark, even in relief. But to start a game in Yankee Stadium, are you kidding me? So now I got the bases loaded, and nobody out. And I oh, wow, this is real sweet. Here you go again, Rook. You know. <laughs> Well, I strike a guy out, I think it's what happened, or popped him up, one of the two, and then I get a double play. So I'm out of the inning, no hits. An error and two walks, I think, okay? So now I go to the bottom of the ninth inning, leading one to nothing. And I didn't realize it at the time. Uh, I wish I could remember our traveling secretary's name, real nice guy, Rick something. Uh, they took a picture on the scoreboard. I didn't notice it because I was I just walking to the mound and just uh, you know getting warmed up for the for the bottom of the ninth inning. And they put up on the scoreboard there the last no hitter thrown in Yankee Stadium was Don Larson's perfect game in the 1956 World Series. So he had somebody took a picture of that, and uh, about a month or two later, I got it in the mail at the ballpark, and I still have that picture. Uh, of of what that said, and then the the scoreboard. They have a picture of the scoreboard. Well, don't you know Horace Clark, the first hitter? And the one thing you don't do to Horace Clark is throw him a first pitch fastball about shoulder high. And guess what I did? <laughs> throw him a first pitch fastball shoulder high. I didn't want it there. I wanted it down a little bit. Well, he lines a single to left field. And then I'm thinking, okay, all right, there goes your no-hitter. And everybody was gave me a nice hand. I appreciated that and everything. Now, here comes Mercer, lefty against lefty, and I'm doing okay with him. I've pitched to him before. And uh, he hits a double to right center. And I think either a ground out or something like that or maybe a sacrifice fly or whatever. And I get out of the inning, though, tied 1-1 in the, in the uh, uh, ninth inning, bottom of the ninth. So then I get him out in the 10th and the 11th, and then we go to the 12th, and I, I either walked a guy or did something, and they had two guys on, and I don't know how many pitches. We didn't count them back then. And so uh, uh, they brought in uh, Mo Drabowski, and he gave up a sacrifice fly, which was fine. You know, Mo, you know, what the heck, he comes in in a real bad spot. And I think they, they either – Walked a guy to load the bases or some whatever the deal was, but there was a guy I know on second and third when Mo came in, and uh, whoever it was hit a sacrifice fly and they end up winning it two to one. So it was still a thrill for me, but a disappointment that again uh, uh, that you that I did lose the game. Uh, it would have been for me obviously a little historic to to pitch a no hitter in Yankee Stadium, but uh, it was thrilling and at the time. To pitch 12 innings, not that you do it. I mean, I never did it again in my career, and it doesn't happen very often, but you don't put that much importance on it back then. Today, it would be headlines all over the country for somebody to pitch 12 innings, no matter who it is. If they pitch eight innings today, it's a big deal. So when when I tell people that story, they look at me and they go, "You, you pitched into the 12th inning? I went, yeah. And I still had good stuff, I might add. I wasn't losing much. I just... Uh, and again, I think I did walk a guy or maybe give up a hit. I can't remember how they got on base. That's that's the thing about getting old. You can't remember every little <laughs> detail, but most of them. Was that uh, was that the best game you ever pitched in your whole career? Uh, uh, you know, 
I'll say no only because when I started the fifth game of the of the 79 World Series, um, Steve Nikosha and I went over the hitters before the ball game, and the Orioles, the report that was given the pitchers on the Orioles was exactly the opposite of what it should have been. In fact, when we went over their, their lineup the first day, Bert Blylevin, me, Donnie Robinson, and Bruce Keeson were all sitting next to each other, and Chuck Tanner's going over how to pitch these guys. And we're looking at each other, because we're not going to say anything. Uh, you don't want to piss Chuck off, you know. So uh, we're both kind of, everybody's kind of eyeballing each other, and I'm saying, you got you got to be kidding me. Like Doug DeSensei's, they're saying to throw him, he can't handle a fastball up and out over the plate. <laughs> and I'm thinking, what in the, who wrote this? <laughs> and and we pitched according to, you know, Keeson actually started the first game and hurt his elbow, didn't, or his arm, didn't realize the damage he'd done at the time. But by the time we got to that fifth game and being down three games to one, Nick and I went over the meeting between just to him and I after, after, we, after the manager kind of went over the, the hitters before the game. And I told Nick, I said, I don't care who it is, Nick, we're jamming every right-hander that comes up there. And... Uh, Ray Miller told me later on, because he, when he came over to be the pilot pitching coach when I was broadcasting, um, he said that the report on me that they got was that I had a, I had a bad arm. Because I was on the DL that year, but it wasn't because I had a bad arm. I had hurt my back a little bit, but I still shouldn't have gone on the disabled list. Chuck Tanner put me on the DL on purpose because they wanted to check this other pitcher out to see if they might use him at some point and, and, uh, so I went on for two weeks, and I was really not happy about it. But I, I had I had a I didn't have a real good year that year. So there's not much you can argue. You know, he's the manager. He gives you the ball. He takes it away. So you just shut up and pitch when you have the ball. So when it was time for the playoffs in the series, I was ripe again and ready to go. So when we got into that game, as I pitched, I think three and a third innings of relief in the first game, and just shut them down. So when I got to the fifth game, I knew I had him by the throat. Now, if, does that mean I was going to pitch well? You don't know till you get out there and execute your, you know, what your game plan is. So, if there was ever a game where I wanted to do everything I did, that was the game. And I didn't, I didn't even watch the tape of that game for five years. I never even gave it a thought. I just, in my mind. But one night I was down at my place in Florida. And some people asked me about it, and I said, well, you know what, let's, here, let's throw this tape and look. When I sat there and watched it, I'm thinking inside, inside, to these right-handers, move the ball away a little bit once in a while. It was the, uh, even the no-hitter I pitched was okay, but that was explosive stuff that I had that night. I had good stuff against Baltimore when I pitched against them, but my control and Steve Nikosha, the catcher, we were so much on the same page with everything that it was a it was a walk in the park for me. Unfortunately, Chuck only let me pitch five innings, but and I was behind one to nothing when he took me out, but I only gave up one hit at that point. So, you know, that I think that game is the one that does stand out, number one, because everything I wanted to do I did, plus I think the importance of it being in the World Series. Yeah. We're down three to one. We win that game. Then we go to Baltimore and win the next two and win the World Series. So, 
for every little kid uh, or major league player that ever wants to be in that position and win and get the opportunity to, you know, to to help your team out to be some kind of impact for your ball club, it everything wrapped up into into one. I, I was able to accomplish, so I, w- I was pretty happy about that. Well, taking a step back, following the '72 season when the Royals sent you to Pittsburgh for Gene Garber, what was that like? Was that a surprise to you? Oh yeah. Well, I was in Venezuela, and Vic Davalillo. Uh, we were playing. He played for Caracas, and I played for LaGuardia in, in Venezuela. And Vic came up to me during batting practice. I was actually pitching that night, I think. And he he doesn't speak very good English, and he's talking to me in Spanish. And all I kept hearing that I were you know parates. But he said, you know, tu esta cambio a la piratas, which means you were traded to the Pirates. Well, I didn't, I didn't get the cambio part, which means change in Spanish, but, you know, trade. So our, our third base coach, Ronco, was standing next to me. I said, Ronco, what the hell is he saying? <laughs> and, and he says, I don't know, he's a victor. And he says, and then he said it again, he repeated it. And Ronco looked at me and said, he told you you've been traded to the Pittsburgh Pirates. And I went, What? So that's how I initially found out, and then uh, at some point through winter ball, after I got through all of that and, and had a hell of a year over there, um, I come back to Kansas City, and I think I got a phone call from somebody. I don't know who it was, maybe a sports writer, but I said, because all those years I've watched the Pirates. I had my roommate, Bob Johnson, got traded over there the year before from Kansas City, and uh, uh uh, I, you know, would watch them because of him, and and you know, I mean, look, look at that lineup the Pirates had. I, I always figured if you could go six innings, six, seven innings, and stay in the game, you had an eighty percent chance of winning that ball game because they were going to score runs for you. So I made a comment that getting traded. Somebody asked me what it felt like when I got traded to the Pirates. I said it's like walking down the street and finding money, because I knew if I and I, it wasn't automatic. But I went through spring training there, and I had a dynamite spring training. That's I had to sell myself to them uh, uh, to make the team. I wasn't. I didn't get traded there, and I was going to automatically be on that ball club. So uh, I pitched my tail off and had a great spring. But the first day, I got to tell you this story. You'll get a kick out of this because I I had been a little wild in my day on and off the field <laughs> and and when I got traded to the Pirates the very first day of spring training we go through a very light day Bill Verdon's the manager and he tells okay that's it everybody's that's it for today everybody starts to trot into the clubhouse and he says Rooker wait a minute come here and I'm thinking hmm I wonder what this is all about so I go over and he says I've got to let you know, your reputation has preceded you a little bit over here. And I said, in regard to, and he said, well, I've heard some stories about you. And I said, well, I said, Bill, the only thing I can say, and I, can't, I sure as hell can't make any demands, I said, is judge me on what you do see here and, and go from there. He said, that's what I'm going to do. And, and I love Bill Verdon. He treated me really well. And, and uh, he said, don't get in trouble, don't embarrass the team, and don't get thrown in jail. <laughs> that night, I was in jail with my roommate, Bob Johnson. He got into a car wreck, and one thing led to another, and there was a mounted policeman, a Florida 
uh, uh, or uh, Florida Highway Patrol guy or whatever, local guy, I don't even know what, what he, he wore one of those Mountie hats. But anyway, I had a little conversation with him that didn't go too well. And uh, after we had been in, after we got done with the workout, we had this local little watering hole. We stopped on the way home, me and uh, him and Bob and me and, and two other guys. And uh, uh, we probably spent about four hours in there, which was way too long. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we we got over-served is, is the problem. And, and uh, thank God I wasn't driving the car. Bob Johnson was. So, But anything, one, anyway, one thing led to another. And both Johnson and I end up in jail. I'm thinking, well, that's it for the Pirates. I'm done. <laughs> and uh, But... Bill Verdon never found out we were in jail. I asked him years later when I was broadcasting. I didn't have the nerve to ask him before then, and now I'm broadcasting, and Bill is managing the Expos in his batting practice, and I just talking to him a little bit about stuff from, you know, just about his club. And, and I said, i got to ask you a question. I said, do you remember my first day as a pirate in spring training? You had a little conversation with me about staying out of trouble and none of this stuff. And he said, vaguely, vaguely, you know, he said, I kind of, you know, I might've had that conversation with you, knowing you, you know, he had to rub it in a little bit. He always teases me. So, uh, I said, well, did you know that Bob Johnson and I ended up in jail that night? And he, he had the most stunned look on his face and he said, you're kidding, aren't you? I said, no, we ended we were in jail, Bill. And he, he, then he got a chuckle out of it, and he said, well, I'm not surprised. <laughs> <laughs> but the worst part, part, my son David, the next day, because I didn't get home till 3 or 4 o'clock in the morning, we finally got out from a bail bondsman. And, of course, being in the jail for so long, we figured, well, geez, we found an after-hours club and went and had a drink. That was real <laughs> smart. You know, that's how dumb we were. But... I didn't get home till 3 or 4 o'clock in the morning, and that didn't set well. So the next night, we're eating dinner, my wife and I, and, and son and daughter, and David, the, the children were both going to the local school on the island, the Anna Marie Island down there. And David is telling his, his mother, Betty, Mom, guess where we went today on our field trip? And, you know, we're both kind of, geez, Dave, where did you go? Where did they go? We went to the Manatee County Jail. <laughs> she, and, and we saw the place where they keep all the drunk guys. <laughs> and I got the look across the table from me. If she, if she had a gun, she would have shot me, I think. And, and my son started to tell more. And I said, Dave, that's, that's enough. You know, I said, that's nice that you got to, you know, now you'll know you'll never want to go to a place like that, right? <laughs> no, no, Daddy, I never wanted Okay, but I, boy, you talk about the look on her face, because that's where I spent the night before. <laughs> so That's fantastic. That's how that worked out. That's fantastic. Is it okay if I ask you about, like, seven or eight of your former Royals guys that are no longer with us, your teammates? Just, sure, uh, so sure, they, yeah. So, so they kind of have a memory of them on the Internet? Um, first of all, so tell us what you remember about Jerry Adair. Well, Jerry was kind of a stabilizing uh, effect for our club, our, our uh, you know, not so much hitting-wise, but defense-wise. He was really uh, a guy that knew how to play the game. And it was funny, him and Morgan didn't get along at all. They would argue with each other all the time, but Joe wanted him in there because he, he respected him as a player. But on occasion, they might have a, a, a couple of beers too many or whatever, and they would argue, and it would be kind of a funny deal. I mean, it was kind of a ribbing 
situation, but I, I think there was a lot of respect between the two of them. But uh, he was a club hitter. You know, he got some big hits and a very good infielder. He did a great job. How about uh, Joe Foy? Joe, he, he was kind of a different player. You know, I mean, he did a good job at third base. Uh, I think uh, when he was, we drafted him from Boston, I believe, when he was with that lineup, he was protected a little bit because uh, they had a stronger lineup. But Joe was the kind of guy, I think at that point in his career, he couldn't really carry the team, uh, but he, he he did a good job. You know, under he was one of those. I think what you'd call at that time, and now they use the phrase "usable players." Uh, he had pretty good bat, uh, you know, offensively, and and was I think he wasn't a Gold Glover at third base, but he got the job done. How about uh, Ed Kirkpatrick? Spanky, one of my one of my buddies. Uh, um, he uh, he he was uh, I don't know a funny guy. He could play. You know, catcher, first base, outfield, uh, California guy, uh, just just fun to be around. Uh, I grew up in Southern California, so we, we had a, a pretty good relationship with, uh, with each other. Um, you know, some power once in a while, and, and you know, everybody got along with him. Uh, and, and, you know, he, he was, uh, fortunately, how his accident happened was it was unbelievable, but uh, he was a pretty good player, you know, because you could use him in so many ways. Do you remember Juan Rios? Yeah, shortstop, right? Yep. Yeah, Juan, again, uh, uh, most of these guys, well, Juan falls into a category. I think he was still trying to establish himself. He wasn't really an everyday player, but he did a pretty good job. Uh, you know, line drive type hitter with a good glove. Most of Latin, most most Latin players that you come across, I think they're initially, unless they're really you know a blue chip player, the majority of them, I think they can play anywhere in the field. They're so good on defense. Yeah, yeah, totally. Hawk Taylor. Hawk Taylor, yeah, catcher, first baseman, kind of outfielder. Uh, Carl, was that his name? Was it or Bob? No, let's see. He was. Remember they call him. There was a Carl. I think he was Bob. I think. Yeah, yeah, Bob. Okay. you know, line drive hitter again. He was more. He was more of these astute kind of guys that really, really uh, knew the game. And uh, you know, the, the, I'll tell you the funny thing about it is, though, what not not just him, but a lot of the players, they didn't share as much information back then because you're on an expansion team, and we had a lot of guys. And and I was why well, everybody, not everybody, but you're you're so much. Uh, wanting to establish yourself that you you're kind of selfish you didn't share the information back then with that kind of team but you could tell he knew how to play the game and if you asked him a question about something uh you know regarding the game pitching or whatever he he would you know he would uh, help you out so um you know he did a good job as well mo Drabowski? oh mo was my favorite of all of them mo uh he was, you know, like I say, young guys. Most Mo Mo liked his Manhattans, but Mo was the guy that you learned early. Uh, he he would always say, "You can't soar with the eagles if you fly with the owls, huh. and if you fly with the owls, you better be out there the next day 
running your tail off and running all of, you know, all of that stuff out of your system. And I never, ever saw a pitcher that ran more before a game than Mo Drabowski. And rarely will you see any relief pitchers doing much running these days at all. Uh, but Mo, he would go out there and wear those rubber suits, you know, where it would have elastic around the arms and the waist and the neck, so there wasn't much breathing going on. And, and you, he would sweat out 5 pounds, 10 pounds just by running. For, I mean, he'd go out there and run an hour. I don't know how he did it, but he, and he knew how to pitch. I mean, he was the right, perfect person for our pitching staff because Mo cultivated us guys. He would, he would give us an idea of how to pitch guys, how to how to get ready mentally. You know, like I say, some of us it, it took a little longer to to really uh, uh, take advantage of that information and put it to use. Some guys got 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 it a little quicker than others. Tragic death for him, but do you remember Don O'Reilly? I don't know how he passed away, but I do remember. Oh, uh, he was kind of a wild guy. Uh, you know, good stuff. He was a local kid, wasn't he? Yep, yep, yep. That's what I thought. He was from Kansas City. Yeah, he was. Uh, he, he was kind of in. I'll say in my category to a degree. Kind of, uh, you know, like to like to play hard on and off the field. Uh, he had pretty good stuff, and I, I think in his case, I really don't think that he knew when to to back off. You know, when he was out at night, uh, you get to a you get to a certain point where you. You know, you're thinking, hey, I need to, you know, you, somebody gives you a wake-up call and says, you, you, you need to lighten up a little bit. You know, start spending a little more time in your room instead of on the streets. And um, O went at it pretty hard. But he was, you know, I mean, he had good stuff. He had real good stuff. Uh, um, and, again, I don't know how he passed away. So uh, I do remember him, though. Yeah, he actually was working at a convenience store here in Kansas City and was actually shot during a robbery, like in the head. Oh, you're kidding me. No, wow. it, was, it was real tragic, yeah. Um, yeah. Aurelio Monteaguido, is that how you said that name? Monteagudo. There you go. Aurelio Monteagudo. Wasn't he a pitcher? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think I pitched with him in Venezuela, and uh, he, was, he, was a, he was a solid pitcher. I mean, he was one of these guys uh, – that that threw a lot of everything didn't didn't master any one thing but he could throw a lot of stuff move the ball around and and very again very usable because he could start if you need a starter mostly long man he wasn't the closer type but he was the kind of pitcher that uh you know you always want that kind of guy on a, on a pitching staff because you could if you know in emergencies if you needed a guy for four or five innings he could give them to you or if you needed a somebody that uh had to make an emergency start. He could do that for you as well. So he, you know, he 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 could do a lot of good things for a ball club. Did you know that there's been uh, three guys named Aurelio in Major League history and all died in car accidents? How creepy is that? Aurelio Rodriguez. Yep, and Lopez too, the Tigers guy. Yeah. Okay. Kind of, kind of. No, a, I didn't. Kind of a morbid and sad little trivia question. How about uh, how about Jerry May? Jerry May. Um, uh, I think I played with him the one year, but he's the guy that came over with Patek in, in the in the Bob Johnson deal, wasn't it? Yep. Um, Jerry was a good catcher, you know. And the, and the good thing about it is, from being with the Pirates, he came from an experienced ball club, and uh, that helped the pitching. You know, uh, 
seemed like he got injured a lot, though, uh, from what I recall, that, that he, you know, not so much on the disabled list, but would miss a few games here and there, nagging little injuries, but, a, you know, did a good job behind the plate. How about uh, Bruce Del Canton? Oh, Bruce was, he was a sweetheart. I heard Bruce swear one day, and I said, Bruce, you don't say those kind of words. You're too nice a guy to use those kind of words. He was a sweet, but he had the guts of a burglar. You would never know that because he was so pleasant. And probably one of the last conversations I ever had for, for, with Bruce was every year in Pittsburgh, Dick Grote has this uh, golf uh, uh, outing for uh, um, pirate alumni guys. And, uh, Dick owns a golf course out, outside of Pittsburgh, so we go up there for the day and just have a great time, and we sit around and, you know, obviously talk baseball. I'm talking to Bruce one day because everybody, when he became a pitching coach, everybody loved him that ever he worked for. And I, I said, what's it like? And he said, Rook, you wouldn't want to be a coach today with the way that they have you do things. Um, in the minor leagues, we're not talking about the big leagues. And, and he was just, he said, it's so hard because – you have your philosophies, but if you don't fall in line with what they want you to do, even though you know they're wrong, you know, you've got to do things sometimes the wrong way. But Bruce was uh, such a competitor. I mean, so, and such a – everybody that I know really liked Bruce Del Canton. And I know his former players loved him, the guys that he coached when he was a pitching coach. And he uh, – you know, I mean, Bruce did a great job. I was—I only was with him, I think, the one year in Kansas City before I got traded to Pittsburgh, too. But Bruce, man, he, he whatever he had, he gave you every bit of it when he went out there to pitch. Two more guys. How about Lance Clemens? Uh, don't remember too much about it. I do, do remember the name, but I don't remember playing too much with him. So I, I really can't help you out there. Yeah, that was towards the end, I think, with your Royals. And then how about Ted Abernathy? Oh, I like Ted, too. He was another guy, came over with the experience, uh, gave you confidence. I mean, he was the right kind of have, and he was one. He was a lot like, Mo, Mo was a little more aggressive. I think Ted was more kind of like a southern guy. He was a little more laid back, and, uh, but he, he, he was this kind of guy that was, uh, you know, he, he was a submarine type pitcher, and uh, was uh, uh a go-getter, so to speak, where he didn't back off on hitters. He went right at them. And, it, you know, it's, it's it's fun watching guys like that work. It's just that I wish I would have mentally been able to apply it to my physical abilities when, you, when you're around guys like Abernathy and Drabowski uh, because they had it figured out. They had been around long enough. And it just, for some reason, like I say, some guys it takes a little longer to figure out and and once you do, if you get in that comfort zone, then it's a whole different program. But Abernathy, yeah, he did it. He he was a nice addition when we got him in Kansas City. What are your favorite memories of Kansas City, both on and off the field? Oh, uh, I think on the field, having a young group of guys, uh, which we were. I mean, safe for for a couple of the veterans. Uh, but, you know, when, when uh, Mo's an example, when we'd go out to have dinner afterwards or a few drinks, it was, it was so much fun uh, because we were a loose group. And, and uh, there was a bar in New York, I'll, I'll, uh, and, and again, I'll say kind of a wild group of guys. I'll add that in there. <laughs> but we had the reputation 
the guy that owned this bar in New York called Mr. Left. It was a hot spot for teams that, and a, you know, a, a watering hole for a lot of ball clubs, and even the home teams would go in there. Uh, had a big reputation in New York, and that's where we went after a lot of the games. The guys that owned the place gave us the reputation of the wildest bunch of guys in the major leagues. Either team, American or national, he said that Kansas City bunch is a, is a bunch of wild guys that like to have fun. So uh, you just had to know when to cut it off. But we, we, I think as a team, we had a bunch of guys that liked each other, respected each other. Um, I, I think if had we, uh, you know, probably applied ourselves, and I'll, I fall into that category probably a lot more than, than some of the other guys, that had I applied myself a little sooner and, and tried to concentrate a little more on the game. Once I got to Kansas City, I kind of took it for granted. I didn't respect the game as much as I should have. And you learn those things in later years. And I think once I got over to Pittsburgh, I, I kind of got it a little better. Uh, but uh, Kansas City was a lot of fun. I mean, when I went back there to broadcast, uh, when I worked for ESPN, I, I drove around the city. I got there a day early, drove around the city. I tried to find my house where we lived out in Overland Park. I couldn't find the house because they developed a little bit, uh, you know, from what I remembered. And uh, I always enjoyed That's why I always, you know, wish that, that they had something for the 69 team, the original Royals, have some kind of a reunion because, uh, you know, we're dropping them, you know. So they, if they're going to have something, I think they ought to have it pretty soon while we're still around. But. It's a lovely city, great town. Uh, the fans were really, really nice to us. I think, considering that we were, a, a, you know, a, an expansion team. So I, I have very fond memories of Kansas City. I'm going to see if I can't help try to make that 69 thing happen. That'd be really cool. So a few more. Yeah, I think so. A few more post-career questions for you. Uh, 1980 was your last year. Then from uh, 81 to 93, you've mentioned that you're an analyst for the Pirates, and then 94 to 97 for ESPN. But I've got to talk about the famous night, June 8th, 1989. The Pirates are up 10 nothing. Take it from there and tell us what happened. Well, first of all, we had been. This was the last game of a road trip where we had, we had lost three games in New York. We had a four-game series in Philly, which one of them was rained out, and uh, we had lost the first two of the three games before the rain out. Now it's our last game. And we're heading back to Pittsburgh after the game, a night game. So we scored 10 runs in the first inning. And wouldn't you know, as this thing turns out, Bob Walk was our starting pitcher. <laughs> and he had, a, he had a bad leg and didn't tell Chuck Tanner. So he went out there. We got 10 runs in the first inning. They come back and get a run here or two there or whatever. Now, by the fifth inning, by the, by the fifth inning, I know we're in trouble. I mean, they're right back in the ball game. And Steve Jelf, who couldn't hit the ball out of his kitchen, <laughs> he's a switch hitter, hits a home run from each side of the plate that night. First uh, Philadelphia player ever to do it in the, in the history of their ball club. <laughs> so, uh, uh, you know, like I say, things aren't going to – they're going downhill. And finally, I mean, they end up winning the game by a score of 15-11. But I had said in the first inning, because of that lead, and I've been in all the years I've been in the game of baseball, I have never been in a game where we were ahead 10 runs and lost or behind 10 runs and came back to win. So I just made a simple comment. I said, it's, you know, if you're only going to win one game on the road trip, 
why not make it the last game because the ride home is a little more enjoyable. In fact, if we lose, I'll walk home. <laughs> I said it just that casually. And then we end up losing the ball game 15 to 11. <laughs> the next day, uh, I get all of these calls saying, are you going to do it? And I'm thinking, do what? They said, well, you said if you lost, you'd walk home. And that's when I said, well, if we get sponsors, I'll do it for charity. And unfortunately, we got sponsors and flew to Philadelphia uh, at the end of the year, the day after the last game of the season, flew to Philadelphia and started to walk back to Pittsburgh 328 miles in 13 days. (laughs) So we went ahead and did it, raised $81,000 for charity, and... uh, my my feet are still. I still have problem with my left ankle. <laughs> That's what a what a great story. Oh, uh, hey, here here's an, an addition though. We're we're out in the middle of nowhere. I mean nowhere, and we're walking on the left side of the road where traffic is coming into us. So we, you know, you want to see, you know, what you're what you're where you're going, and cars are, you know, and this is a country road. We're not on a on a major highway, and. This buddy of mine walked every step of the way with me. His name was Carl Dozy. And I look up ahead about, oh, maybe 100 yards, and I see this car pull up from this side road. And it's an elderly lady, and I can see her look both ways. And then she starts to pull out, and I don't know why. I grab Carl's arm, and I said, you know what? Let's move over here a little farther off the side of the road here. Well, I didn't notice at the time, but she was on a little... When she turned on the road, there was a little crest in that hill. Well, here comes an 18-wheeler highballing it down the road that she pulls right in front of. Oh, no. The guy goes around her. He doesn't have time to... If he goes straight, he he goes right over the top of her. He goes around her, and if we wouldn't have moved over, he would have rolled, rolled right over the top of us and would have just you know, obviously killed us. And I'm standing there after the 18-wheeler goes by, and Carl looked at me and just stared at me. He said, how did you know? And I said, I didn't. Whatever made me do that, I think I get goosebumps every time I talk about it. Whatever made me think about just making him, I don't know if it was just that the, the fact it was an older woman, I, you know, when she came, she was going to turn into, you know, our way. Uh, I just, I don't know what, what made me do it, but, uh, it saved our lives because I know that truck, he went right over the very spot we were, we would have been walking. Wow. Wow. So that was weird. So besides baseball broadcasting, you got into politics and ran for the Pennsylvania House of Representatives and also Congress. Now, were, I, I, it's, it's conflicting reports everywhere I read. Were you a Republican or Democrat? Well, I, I'm a, I'm a registered Republican, but it, it took me my second uh, chance to run as a Democrat, re-register, because you can't win as a Republican in that district. Okay. So I am I am a registered Democrat, soon to be re-registered, um, not as a Democrat, but, uh, oh, geez, I can't even think of the word. What's the middle one? Oh, moderate or whatever? Independent, independent, independent. Yeah. Gotcha. Independent, because the, the Republicans are letting me down now. They, they don't know how to fight. Yeah. <laughs> They got to learn how to fight. <laughs> Love it. And last thing, aren't you? Are you like a dog trainer? Did I read that too? No, I don't even know where that came. That was on one of my baseball cards. To this 
day. I don't know where that came from. <laughs> and I, I never, you know, I mean, it's an, it's basically an error card. I mean, I guess I, and there, there's another one that says I was born in 1941, which I wasn't. I was born in 42. So there's another card in the, <laughs> I think, uh, the, the late 60s or early 70s that has me another error card that, that's out there somewhere. Do you have a favorite baseball card, by the way? Is there one that you like the most? And do you have them all? Uh, I have them all, yeah. I have a box of them that I, you know, I've, I've saved through the years, and I just, you know, keep tossing them in there if I get some. But uh, not really. I mean, to have, to be on, to be on a uh, baseball card number one. I mean, when I have people that don't really know me or baseball itself, and and they'll see that and they say that you're on a baseball card. You know, I mean, they they really, uh, you know, I mean that's a big thing for them. And so as a player, I just, I never took that for granted. I always thought it was such an honor. You know, to be on a baseball card. Uh, I'll tell you another real quick story. You know who bon jo- John Bon Jovi is? Of course. Love that guy. Well, he was in Pittsburgh doing a concert, and uh, we were sitting down in the dugout, and I went up and introduced myself, and I'm talking to him. And, 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 and you know, in the batting practice, the ball kind of rolls over to us, and I just picked it up, and I'm flipping, him up, I'm flipping it up and down. And he says, uh, is that a real baseball? And I says, what do you mean a real baseball? And he says, is that a major league baseball that you use in the game? I said, yeah. He said, they, you know, they use the same thing in batting. He said, that's a real major league baseball? <laughs> I went, yeah. He said, oh, my God, you got to be. I said, well, here, you can have. You would have thought I gave him. So I, I, went in, I said, here, wait right here. I went into the clubhouse and got a new one. And I said, do me a favor. Sign this to my, to my daughter, uh, uh so he he signed it to Jamie, my youngest daughter, to Jamie with love, John Bon Jovi. And since then, I got Tom Selleck, Goldie Hawn, a uh, couple other balls that I had him sign for. Because she was a little baby way back then. So I, I, I got, you know, some balls signed that she still keeps today. But uh, he was he told me when he signed that ball, he says, you don't know what an honor it is for me to sign a Major League Baseball. Now, I mean, this was 19 in the in the late 70s when this happened. No, I take it back later than that because I was broadcasting at the time. So the early 80s. So think how young he was back then. Yeah. But it was an honor for him to sign a Major League Baseball. I, I, I got a kick out of that. Well, in closing, what would you like to say to Royals fans listening right now? Oh, wow. I never thought I'd ask to be asked that. Uh, well, uh, I, I'm glad they won a World Series, uh, you know, even though that the, the call at first base had a big <laughs> part of that one. But uh, uh, the fans there deserve a World Series. They had a, I, I, they had a great owner, Mr. Kaufman. He was such a, a wonderful person. Him and his wife had loved the game so much, uh, did everything possibly under the sun for the players to, you know, to, to help them win. Uh, you know, for for an expansion team, I think I, I would have to consider myself very fortunate to be uh, drafted by Kansas City and not say Seattle is the way it worked for those guys. Um, we were the lucky ones to to be part of that organization, and I'm you know it's uh, it was I I love the city. I hated it, uh, moving I, from California, other than Pittsburgh, other than Pittsburgh, Kansas City is the best town. Actually, I like Kansas City better than Pittsburgh because of the, the, the I don't know, 
the atmosphere, but the, the people in, in Pittsburgh is what made that place special. But Kansas City in itself is just such a nice town, and the organization, the fans, I miss it. I I wish there were more things. You know, that's why I brought up the, the, the 69 team. I wish they had reunion stuff. So I enjoy I've only been back there maybe two times since I left there as a player and after moving to Pittsburgh in 1974. Um I enjoyed it. I loved Overland Park. A lot of our players uh, lived out there. You know, we lived very close to each other, and it was nice having all the guys together like that. So uh, it's fond memories. I'll, I'll never forget it. I mean, it, it, uh, it's a great place, a beautiful city, and, and very nice people. I enjoyed my time there. Well, thanks so much for all your time. Let's definitely stay in touch, and I appreciate everything you gave to the Royals and the fans do as well. Well, Dave, thanks for your help, and I, I appreciate this opportunity, but believe me, 